everyone suffers. And we suffer at various times, in various ways, and for a variety of reasons. You, you don't need the Bible to tell you that. That's everyone's experience. And we all are well acquainted with those seasons of life when you are flat on your back, looking up into the sky, wondering, what am I going to do, right? But even a better question is, when I'm on flat on my back and I'm looking up into the sky, what I'd really like to know is, what's God going to do? That's what the Bible does talk about. And that's kind of what Peter's helped us with. He has taught us about what God is doing in the midst of our suffering. And so right before he signs off and he sends his final farewells, Peter gives us this great promise in 1 Peter 5.10. I want you to look at this. This is good. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So sometimes when we suffer, we feel like God abandons us. That verse tells you he doesn't. It says that he himself, it, it tells you that he's highly involved in your suffering. And then he says that he's going to, and he gives us four words that I'll address here in a moment, but the object of that activity of God is you, which tells us this. Sometimes God doesn't work on the storm as much as he does the sailor, right? He's not working as much on the situation. That's what we would have God to change the situation. And the Bible addresses that in, in other passages. But no, this passage is telling you, man, he's doing something on you in the midst of your suffering. And then he uses four words to describe what God does in our suffering to us. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You take those four words, you look up what they mean in the original language, and I would describe it like this. It tells us, first of all, that God is not in the insurance business. Insurance replaces what you have lost, usually with a deductible, right? That's not what God does. He does not replace what is lost in you in suffering. As a matter of fact, God invests in your suffering. And he takes those places, we've all seen them on the beach, where the hurricane came by and it blew down all the cottages, and they rebuilt it five years later as condos. That is what those four words are talking about. Man, God invests in ruined places in our lives. He digs deeper, he builds higher, so that the next time around, you will go through that storm in a completely different way. Wow, that's a pretty amazing thing that the Bible promises us that God is doing in our suffering. So that would raise the next question. As we all sort of observe suffering in life, and that is what about the situations where a person, I mean, man, they were in our church or they considered themselves to be a Christian and they went through suffering 
and they didn't build back. When you drive by the empty lot of their faith, there's still a pile of rubble. And man, it's been a while. It's growing weeds. And it doesn't appear they're going to return. So you're like, well, what, what happened there? So I want us to kind of go through these two paragraphs from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I think we'll see the answer of why that happens sometimes. But what we all are concerned about, I want that verse 10 experience, right? So how do I grab onto that? Two concepts come out of this passage. The first one is, to be successful in suffering, there has to be congregational humility. Congregational humility. What is the experience you have with the people of God when you're suffering? Because let's just be honest for a moment. When people go through suffering, we can't see God, right? We can't feel God. We don't, you know, there's a lot of perception that's missing in that because he's spiritual. We're physical in a lot of ways. Where is he in the world? We've talked about in 1 Peter, what God does is he ministers his graces through his people. That's why when somebody suffers, the first thing they ask is, did the pastor call? <laughs> right? And if he didn't call, they kind of get negative on that. If the congregation kind of bails out, everybody wonders, well, did anybody really care when I went through? See, suffering gets real personal because we all need a group of people that will surround us and come to our aid and care about us whenever we suffer. And what a wonderful experience it is when God ministers his graces through his people, man. God, you, you didn't saw, see God, but you saw God through the hands and feet of Jesus. Man, they gave you the words. They, they prayed for you, ministered to you, came to your aid. So, so the, the personal part of it, the congregational part of it, puts a face on our experience with the Lord through our suffering. So the way we respond to suffering as a congregation is very, very important. So the, the, then the question is this, are we creating an atmosphere in our church where when people suffer, they experience God? That's where congregational humility comes in. So look at the end of that first paragraph because he gives you a command and a command always has a condition, right? Here's the command. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. There's the command. And commands by nature, you either do them or you don't. And if you do them, one thing happens. And if you don't do them, another thing happens, right? So what happens in the condition of this? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. If you don't do it, look at this. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, that's where that verse 10 comes in. Man, the grace of God in, in a group of humble believers, he begins to work and he's, he's knocking down little theological cottages and he's rebuilding strong condos and the experience of our suffering. But it precipitates on the obedience to the command, humble yourselves. Now, let's, let's talk about the two sides of that coin for a moment. Humility. If you go through the Bible and you survey humility, you'll see a lot of times those words that Peter is quoting. Humble yourselves before the Lord. 
Humility is people saying, I don't have all the answers. I do not have the strength. I didn't do it all right. Maybe I do deserve this. Humility is brokenness before the Lord saying, God, I need you. We need you to move and to work. And if you don't answer our prayers, we're just going to be a pile of rubble. Humility. Pride. Arrogance, self-preservation, self-seeking, self-centered as pride. The Bible says God resists that. Another thing the Bible teaches us about pride is that pride precipitates a fall. And a haughty spirit goes before destruction. Now, here's the hard thing about pride. Pride is blinding. It makes you very obtuse, which means you're, you're, very, you're not very self-aware in your pride, right? Prideful people say things like this. Well, I consider myself to be a very humble man. <laughs> That's the kind of thing pride will do to you. Pride's like putting a blinder over your eyes and then asking, well, what do you see? You can't see it quite right. But boy, it's dangerous to be prideful. And most people who are prideful, they don't even know it. So Peter says, okay, let's let's talk about some situations where we may become prideful. And there are two. He says it happens with the elders, he's going to describe in this passage, and with the younger. Now, let me I'll explain this more in just a moment. But the elder is kind of the leader of the congregation. The younger is pretty much everybody else, okay? So here's kind of how this works. So he speaks first. He says, I want to talk to the elders first. And I have credibility to do this because, number one, I am a fellow elder. He says, I exhort, verse 1, the elders among you, as a fellow elder. And the second reason I have credibility is, man, he has seen something amazing, He says, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Not only is he saying that I can verify that Jesus was crucified, that he rose from the grave, but I think what he's really saying here is this. I saw the ultimate act of humility, that Jesus became obedient even on the point of death. And something he's going to talk about here in a moment, I also saw in that humility the ultimate act of exaltation. God raised him up in due time. And I can tell you, man, because one, I am you, but boy, I saw how this promise played out in Christ. And I'm telling you, he's reserved a portion of that for you too. So I'm like, okay, Peter, what are you going to tell us about this? So he begins to talk to the elders. But I want to, this is, this is going to, we're about to go into an awkward moment here, right? Because everybody in this room is going, the next part of this passage, dude, is about you. So what I really ought to be doing is turning around looking in the mirror and going, okay, let's talk to this guy, right? And when you go through a passage like this, the human temptation is, is we all know a pastor or a leader or an elder 
that their face fills in the blanks of the warnings of this passage. We all have somebody we say, mm-hmm. I say, uh-huh. Listen, y'all, that's pride. So we got to be careful with that, right? So the thing that we can't forget in this is the historical context of what's going on because this is a congregation who's suffering. And the elder is too. You can't remove the person that he's about to talk to from that historical context. Man, they were about to go through intense, painful suffering. They're all hurting here from the elder to the younger. I would describe it kind of like, here's you an analogy. So back in the 80s, when I was going to youth camp, we would go to youth camp on the church bus. And some of y'all started smiling because y'all know what church bus is, right? Church bus is the bus that the county didn't want anymore. And after 25 years of driving it, they retired it and the church bought it for 500 bucks. That's church bus, right? Every fluid is leaking, all of them. There's no air conditioner on the church bus. The only thing that got improved is they painted over the yellow and they put the church name on it. That's church bus, y'all, right? And how many of y'all remember these rides back in the 80s, man? Oh, wow. Whew. So there you go to beach camp. And I'm going to tell you, driving through South Georgia and South Alabama, two o'clock in the afternoon in June, it's hot, y'all. There's no air on the church bus, right? We all hot. The youth are hot. The pastor is hot. All the chaperones are hot. Everybody's in the same bus and everybody's hot, okay? That's 1 Peter 5. Let's not lose sight of that. They're all suffering. So what is the leadership model that you would employ if you're suffering as a leader and everybody else is suffering as well? How do you lead in a situation like that? Verse 2, shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. You know, that's an interesting model for leadership because this morning, as I was thinking about this idea of shepherding, I went on Amazon and I pulled up the best-selling leadership books of 2022 and 2023. From good to great. That one's been out a while. I've got it and I've read it. A lot of you read that. Good to great, right? Is, is he supposed to, in the suffering, take things from good to great? The one-minute manager, I think that one's been out for like 30 years, but how do you manage your time and how do you be, how do you, you got a lot going on, man. How do you do all that? What about, I like this one, the magic of thinking big. When you're hot on that bus, do you just think big? Six mindsets of CEO excellence. Listen, elder, when you're, when you're suffering, man, just be an excellent CEO. No, that's not the one he gave him. Be a coach. There was a book about coaching. Then the next book was about delegation. Then the next book was about leadership from Navy SEALs. <laughs> just go to war, baby. I don't know. Strategy. 
But we've also heard that culture eats strategy for breakfast. You see, the world is full of leadership models. But the one the Bible gives the elder at all times, but especially in a time of suffering, is shepherd them, man. Shepherd them. Now, that word shepherd implies two things. One, it implies the nature of how you do it. You're going to oversight. You're going to care for them. You're going to feed them. You're, you're going to bring them from the green pasture. You're going to bring them to the still water. You're going to walk them through the dark valley. And man, I want to tell you, this is the hard part of the shepherd thing. You can't solve anybody's problem. All you can do is lead them through it. You're just trying to walk them to the next place. And I'm a fixer. The oversight, man, just, just listen. Just watch over them in that time of their life and just get them to the next thing. And then the other side of that shepherd word is it tells you the nature of what you're dealing with. All we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep just, they go all over the place, right? And at any given time, in any given situation, there's going to be some going astray. If, dude, you're over here by the still water. There's plenty to drink here. And you turn around and three of them fell in down there in the current. And they can't swim. And so you go running over there, pull them out of the water. We're over here in the green pasture. Gosh, there's plenty to eat. You can, you can lay down. You can rest here. There's no danger. And all of a sudden, you're, and there's, there they go, walking up the hill. And the shepherd sees the wolves. The sheep are completely oblivious, man. So you go running, grab that. You grab these. You figure out, man, they were wallowing over in the weeds. And so there's briars in their, their wool. And while you're doing that, you look over here. That one's having a baby. That one's dying. That one's sick. I mean, it's all over the place. Sheep. Whew. And, and it, gosh, it would be so good to just have a model that would make it all simple. But I want to tell you, man, when you're suffering, it'd be great to have a model where something just worked. So I think sometimes when we read this passage, we think of this elder as becoming arrogant. And that's part of that pride word, but I don't think it's always arrogance because I want to tell you as a fellow elder, discouragement can make you prideful too. So can self-preservation. Am I going to survive this? I got to do so all of a sudden, here comes the pride where it starts slipping in. And so he says, the way that ex expressed, he's, he's going to give you two contrasting things, right? The one is a prideful thing. The other one is the balance of humility. Verse 4, not under compulsion. Compulsion is just a job. You're under obligation. You're just, you're just doing it to be doing it, right? You, it's just a job to you. Here's the humble side of it, man. Willingly. 
willingly means you remember who they are. And, and who they are is they're God's sheep. They're not your sheep. That's why he says, as God would have you to. You care about them. You want to be with them. None of them are just a product. Here's the pride. Not for shameful gain. And we all know, man, preachers who can platform themselves and they got the book deal and they make tons of money and everybody wants to hear what they have to say. They're, everybody shares their clip. Everybody makes a trip to their country. I mean, people can't get enough of these guys. And then all of a sudden they crash and burn. And then you hear this. Well... I just, I don't like organized religion for that very reason right there. They're all just a bunch of corrupt, full of themselves pastors. And what we really need to do is just get back to the New Testament church and stop all this big business of organized religion. Just get back to the way it was. Here's my question to you. What do you think that is? Rick Warren didn't write 1 Peter, y'all. <laughs> this is not the follow-up to purpose-driven church. This was happening day one. These guys don't have book deals. They don't have private jets. They're not fat cats that, that are walking around at a convention with all these people in three-piece suits following them around like little toys. But at the same place, he still looks at them and says, not for shameful gain. They're probably not even being paid. But I'm going to tell you, under discouragement, man, you can go into self-preservation mode of wondering, what is in it for me? This is going to destroy me. Self-preservation, self-protection. There's the pride of it all. Karen Jobes in her commentary on this describes it kind of like this. He says, man, this is, the or this is the embryonic church. These people and their suffering, they're probably going from one place to another. And when you talk about elders and youngers, you're not talking about a crowd like this. You're talking about probably five or six people that have gathered together on just trying to get from point A to point B. And basically what an elder is at this point is the most spiritually mature person in the group. The younger doesn't mean they're 18 years old. It means it's just everybody else. So it might be five or six of them. So before you get the temptation, well, we're going to quit going to church and we're just going to go out here in the woods. Five or six of us, we're going to worship God. I think the fact that, that this is in the Bible when the church was very embryonic and just getting started tells you that people have been prone to this kind of pride no matter what setting they are in, no matter how many of them there are, there is always the danger of platforming yourself. What's in it for me? And here's the thing. <laughs> I think this passage tells you pride is just a very human thing. And if six of you go out there in the woods, give it six months you'll have a problem with this. It's just what people do, y'all. Yeah, man, you, so he says, not for shameful gain. Here's the humility. Eagerly, 
eagerly is remember your why that God called you. They're his people. Get back to the root of why you're supposed to be doing it. Not domineering. That's the prideful part of it. Man, setting, up, setting it all up so that it goes your way. You have the power. You have control. The humble side is, but be examples to the flock. Domineering is doing it the way you want it done. Example means you respond the way God would have you to respond. So you're in the bus and everybody's hot. And what a lot of people don't realize until adulthood is, the youth leaders and the pastors want to be just as whiny about the heat as all the kids are. That's what they, they want to say everything because everybody's hot. But you're the leader, man, so you need to be an example, right? But human pride arose. So there's always this wrestling in the, in the whole thing when everybody is hot. So then he reminds them, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, here's your accountability. You'll receive the unfading crown of glory. So you, you need to be careful because ultimately you're going to give an account to Christ, and that ought to humble you. That ought to be kind of a, okay. But listen, pride is not just a problem for the elder. Pride is also a problem for the younger, everybody else. Look at this. He says, likewise. You see, we're all in the bus now. We're all hot. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. And here's the key. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So our question is, are we creating an environment of humility that God responds in our suffering? So what he doesn't tell us right here, he doesn't give us a whole lot of what this be subject to the elders. He didn't really tell you what the problem is. So if, if you want a passage that's very similar to this, it kind of gives you a more full ex explanation, flip a couple of pages over to Hebrews chapter 13 and, and check this out. So Hebrews chapter 13, you're going to find kind of an expansion of the seed thought of what you see here in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I'm going to begin reading in, in Hebrews 13, 7. He says, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he gives you this great thing about Jesus being the high. It's just a beautiful passage right there. And then go down to verse 17. And I think this is kind of the, you're going to see some similar language to First Peter, but listen to this. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. There's that humble part. He says, they're keeping watch over your souls. There's the shepherding reference as those who have to give an account. There's the idea of the chief shepherd who's going to appear. He says, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I think that passage is so insightful for this reason. I think a lot of people miss this. The pastor affects the congregation. Don't miss this, y'all. The congregation also affects the pastor. And if I could kind of pull the curtain back on some things for a moment of how, remember what I said, man, the, this 
pride and all this stuff, man, if it was an expression, it was a problem in the embryonic church, it just expresses itself in different ways. Listen, where a congregation and a pastor can become pridefully toxic and they just feed one another. And I think there's a lot of different ways that it expresses itself. Here's one that I see real prevalent in our, our day and age. You do have, I, I talked about the pastors who platform themselves and they've got all these kind of stuff, man. And boy, they're preaching some really slick stuff. And it's just, wow. And let me tell you what a lot of is going on amongst pastors. There's a lot of pastors that go on that Amazon book list and they're finding these books because you know why? This stuff works in the world. It gets results. Think big. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Six mindsets of a CEO. And people are hungry for that. Especially when you can take a Bible verse and mask where it came from. And you begin to preach these concepts because everybody in the congregation, they want their life to be awesome too. They're going out in the world and they're trying to work and get things done. And man, if I can take something cool that everybody's reading and kind of mask it with a couple of Bible verses and maybe instead of six great ways to be a CEO, maybe we go through six great ways that Jesus can make you an influential person in, in your business or in your life. And people eat that up. And the church is becoming in pride this toxic personality cult. The pastor is platforming themselves, but listen to me. The congregation has some culpability in this because as a congregation, all we're doing is picking our favorite personalities. And if you don't like what they say at one church, well, bless God, I'll just go down here to another because that guy is, man, that's some good stuff. That's a good band. Woo. Like that worship leader. And all the while, as the pastors platform themselves and the congregation picks out their favorite personality, and you say, Brian, come on, man. Hey, listen, 1 Timothy 4, he said, in the last days, perilous times will come. 2 Timothy 4, he said, one of the ways that that'll happen is inside the church, they'll heap for themselves teachers having itching ears. You just pick the person you want to hear. Because they're talking your stuff. And when all of a sudden we get caught up in this success cult of personality that the church is becoming, listen to me, everybody suffers at various times for various reasons in a variety of ways. And when you get T-boned, bam, by suffering, All of a sudden, if you've built the whole cult on pride, you turn around and you realize that we're drunk on heresy. We're not living in reality. 
and the God that didn't help me have a good day? What are you doing? There's no humility in that. That's why there's still an empty lot full of rubble when the storm came. So you got to have congregational humility, man. A group of people who are not trying to pick a personality, but man, they really want to move with the Holy Spirit of God. And if you have a group of people that if you don't say this or you do say that or you don't preach this or you didn't go through that, but they don't go just find the person who does. You see, we all have to clothe ourselves with humility. And if we do that, God gives grace to the humble. If we don't, we're drunk on pride. And we're disillusioned about what's really happening. So the second thing you got to have is theological sobriety. And here's where he kind of brings it home. Listen, when you suffer, what's happening? Here it comes. You ready for this? Humble yourselves. Look at how many times he emphasizes this. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We're not looking for a preacher or personality, man. We're looking for God here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The actual biblical situation, what's going on in your suffering, is the solution for your suffering comes in God's time, not my time. And that right there is, I'm going to tell you, if you grow up in that theological pride That's when people get real, but I'm praying and we're giving and we're coming and I'm listening. Well, what's going on, right? But he tells you, man, you, and this is hard, you humble yourself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God, I hate what I'm going through, Lord. I can't, this is just, it feels like it's going on too long and I'm disillusioned. We talked about the word, there's even Psalms in there where he's going, are you listening to me? Are you going to show up? But man, God, I know that I don't know everything and I don't know everybody and I didn't do it all right. But God, I know that you have a plan for this and I'm going to submit to this because you have your time Oh, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The theological reality the Bible teaches is your world can crumble. And God still cares. You see, the pride tells you if your world crumbles, God doesn't care. But he's telling you right now, no, man, what a humble person does is in that suffering is they're casting their, their cares upon God. Dude, quit giving me a list of six ways Jesus can make me a better CEO and let's just get on this altar and get on our face before God and seek his help. There's no list for that, y'all. But I'm going to tell you, man, if you're hurting, you have a God You can take your cares and say, please help me. And just, man, keep throwing them to him. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there we are going before God saying, what's the deal? That preacher told me that if I did all this stuff, that my life is going to be great, that I was going to make a comeback, that everything was going to work out for me, that I was, what's going on? And he's looking at you saying, read the Bible. You're being hunted. And the enemy's evil. That word devour is it's a big, bloody, meaty, broken mess. Man, you've got an enemy that is trying to chew you up and spit you out. We just want a God who will give us a good day. And he's going, look around, man, you're getting hunted. And in the cult of pride, the church is being picked off by a real enemy who really exists, and man, is he evil. Listen to me, church. He, he can make you suffer bad. Resist him. He said, the same suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not the first one to suffer. You're not the only one to suffer. You're not the last one to suffer. It's going on all over the place. We need a little theological sobriety, y'all. The American church is drunk on prosperity. Look what's going on around the world, and you'll see what the devil does, man. And those people, boy, they go after God. He's the only hope they got. And I don't like this one, but it's true. After you've suffered a little while. Boy, those words, little while, are relative, aren't they? Especially when, man, so Kylie had two surgeries over the last two summers, right? We got some doctors and surgeons that are in the room. You got, we got some dentists and stuff in our church. Y'all get this. And I, look, y'all know what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to be critical. But you go into that, that consultation and they'll tell you, man, knee surgery, that's no big deal, man. We do it all the time. Well, how long is it going to take? Oh, it won't take long. Well, to the doctor who does it all day, it probably isn't a long time. But when it's your knee, the word little never applies to while, does it? I mean, it's, it's just a while, right? <laughs> so you got to love this. I mean, you say, hey, it's just a little while. And I'm going to tell you, in reference to God, it may be a little while, but I'm going to tell you, a while is a while, whether it's a little or a lie, y'all. Whew. So your suffering may not end soon. Ooh. That's theological sobriety. But after that, wow. The God of all grace who called you in his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. And to him be dominion, which means he's always in charge. He always will be and he is right now, even in your suffering. Forever and ever, amen. He never surrenders control. Wow. 
God is present, he's powerful, and his promises will prevail. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. He didn't abandon you. He's right there. So, he says the chief shepherd is going to appear. And after that, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory, 1-4. So we're all, we're all going to suffer, right? And we're all going to stand before Jesus. So when you stand before Jesus... Do you think he's going to measure your success in this world? Do you think he's going to go, can I see how many TikTok, any TikTok followers you got? You got any viral videos? Yep. As a matter of fact, I do, Jesus. I tripped on a curb at Walmart, fell flat on my face and... <laughs> You may be that person, the only viral video you got online is your most embarrassing moment, right? You may not be the top seller. You, you may not be the one everybody wants to know, how'd you do that? You may, you may not have a book deal. And guys, I, look, this is what nobody wants to hear, especially on a Sunday when you're supposed to come to church and be told how great you are, Right? But very few of us are ever going to succeed. And if we do, it won't last long. That's the truth. So I praise God that I won't stand before Jesus and he go, do you have a building in New York City named after you? Nope. So let me ask you this. If they never name a street after you, you never become that important in this world. When you stand before Jesus and you don't have a million followers, my question to you is, what have you lost? Nothing. Because he doesn't care. Now, let's flip this over. You may not have succeeded in this world but what is at stake in your suffering? So let's say you suffered and you stood before him and he goes, the lion roared. I told you in the word you were going to be hunted. And he roared and when he did, you ran off and wanted to do it your way. And he ate you up. You left the faith. Now, here's the question. What have you lost? And you lost everything. Book of Hebrews says you can't crucify again the Son of God. Tells you, man, once you've come to the knowledge of the truth, if you go out there and you try to find some other way of salvation, that prideful search that we all want to do of doing it our way, he says, all that's left out there is fearful expectation of judgment. Hey, listen, if you suffer and you're going to, we're not all going to succeed, we're all going to suffer. 
Nobody's looking that book up on Amazon. I hate to tell you all that. that that's not a bestseller, but that's the truth. But you've got to succeed in suffering. And you have a God who does not mind blowing down your theological cottage, man, and bringing back a condo deep and firm, and it can hold a lot, and it can get through that next storm in a completely different way. But listen, He does that. Our response is to humble ourselves before the Lord. Otherwise, we have this toxic soup of pride that we mask with Bible verses. But when you get T-boned by suffering, all pride does and a haughty spirit does is it leads to a fall. Boy, you got a God. If you'll humble yourselves, man, he gives grace. And he himself will get involved in your suffering. And in a little while, boy, he does an amazing thing in that. He doesn't just replace you. He invests in your suffering. So I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes with me for just a moment. If you're here this morning, you're like, Brian, man, I, boy, we're going through some things, and I have that pride is welled up in me. I'm just mad. Maybe you realize this morning there's some pride there, and you just want to get on our faces before God. And Hey, church, let me tell you, man, when people go through suffering, they don't ask how many people were in life group last week. They're asking, do y'all care? They don't don't care about the program. They want to know, do we care? So are we creating that culture of congregational humility in this place where we're just needing God? So we're going to open the altar. We're going to go about a verse and a chorus. Man, let's get down here. and Let's get on our faces before the Lord because if you're not suffering now, you're going to. Let's sober up on what's actually happening in the world. You got an enemy, man. He's going to tear us up if we're not humble. There's going to be some people who just stand down here. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you come and grab one of them. They'll take the Word of God. They'll show you how to be saved. But the rest of us, man, I want to pray over. I want to end the service this morning praying together on our faces before God. Whether you've been here one week or... 15 years. It doesn't matter. Let's go before God and pray through 1 Peter 5 before we leave here today. I think we all need this. So Heavenly Father, God, we we come before you realizing you are involved in working in our suffering. And we thank you for that. We do grow impatient. It is hot on the bus. We're human. You know we're frail. But gosh, it's amazing what you do if we'll just humble ourselves before a God who invests and gets involved in our suffering. And so, Lord, we, we want to come before you this morning. God, we pray you would save souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together if the Lord.